Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Well, hey, good morning, Emmanuel Faith. So good to see you. My name's Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is really good to be together. If you're joining us online, welcome to you also. If you're joining us online, getting ready for the Super Bowl, shame on you. All right? <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. We love you. Hey, uh, one of my favorite authors um, who speaks to leadership principles is a man by the name of Patrick Lencioni. I, I first heard him speak, I think 15 years ago at a leadership summit, and um, I was just compelled by the way that he took biblical principles and realistic principles in the business world and helped leaders get better. He, he writes these books that um, are sort of like a fable and they tell a story that illustrates a principle in a way that makes it real and easy to understand. And I just, I loved it. In 2012, he wrote a book entitled The Advantage. And in this book, he identifies the key advantage that successful companies have over unsuccessful companies. And he's able to identify that it's not a strategy that successful companies have or a, a business plan or some like secret technology that makes them wildly successful. Um, it's actually something much different, something you might not expect. Um, it's a good book. You should check it out sometime. I mean, how terrible would it be if I didn't tell you what the secret was, right? Like, my guess is you're all wondering, like, what's the secret? What is the advantage? And Lencioni writes, and he says that the advantage is that successful organizations have is organizational health. Like, it's the key factor that makes some businesses flourish and some organizations fail. It's the key factor. Organizational health is the thing that allows some companies to make millions or billions of dollars and other companies to go bankrupt. It's the thing, he claims, that allows some companies to flourish and causes others to fail. The secret advantage. And I think we're all looking for an advantage in our world today. I think we always have been. In fact, um, I, I've thought about the, the big game that's coming up. And um, Andy Reid and Kyle Shanahan have both spent two weeks looking for an advantage. I mean, they've spent two weeks looking at film, combing through film to try to figure out what's an area the other team is weak where we are strong that we can exploit in order to win this game. So how many of you hope that Andrew, Andy Reid found a secret advantage and you're pulling for the Chiefs? Okay. How many of you hope that Kyle Shanahan found the advantage and that the Niners are gonna win? Wow, wow. Well, I guess today we'll see who Jesus wants to win. Um, but I think just like these two coaches are looking for an advantage, I think everybody is looking for an advantage. And in the passage we're gonna study today, Jesus is gonna to talk to the disciples, his disciples about their secret advantage. And spoiler alert, it's better than anything Andy Reid or Kyle Shanahan have found. Spoiler alert, it's better than anything we could have dreamed up or imagined on our own. So if you have a Bible, open with me to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. And as you're turning there, let me remind you of two things in regards to the context of what we're gonna look at today. 
First, we are jumping into the tail end of a conversation that has started in chapter 13 and is going still today. It started around a, a meal table where Jesus told his disciples that he was going to leave. He made it the most awkward dinner of all time. He washed their feet. And then he began to teach them what they needed to know in order to be successful when he was gone. Last week, we saw that Jesus wants to prepare his disciples for pain so that they can persevere in faith. Because if you don't know pain is coming, then you will probably buckle underneath it, but what you expect often determines what you experience. And so Jesus wants people to be prepared to do hard things. He wants us to have a resilient faith. And listen to the way he picks up that same idea in chapter 16, verse four. You ready? Here we go. It says this. I've said these things to you, Jesus says, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. He's preparing them to need perseverance. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks, where are you going? Now let's, let's just pause for a moment because this is a bit of a funny statement by Jesus. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 13, not only have they asked, where are you going once, they've actually asked it two times, once in chapter 13 and once in chapter 14. So what in the world is Jesus saying, why does he point out, none of you are asking me, where are you going? I think what he said is up until this point, you've been inquisitive. Up until this point, you've been, you've been dialed in. You've, you've really been wondering and you've been asking, but, but now I've laid all of this on you and, and you're silent. So what's the deal? What changed? Why are you silent? And then he answers his own question. And he says, but because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. I, I don't know how you react when you experience grief, but I often just grow quiet. I often just take a, a step back in order to sort of process. And I mean, think about all the things that Jesus has just told his disciples. He's told them, I'm gonna leave you. He's told them the world is going to hate you. He's told them you are going to get kicked out of the synagogue because of me. And they are dead silent. And Jesus just identifies, well, it's because sorrow has filled your heart. And I, I don't know about you, but one of the things that I love most about Jesus is that even as he experiences pain, he's attentive to the pain that his disciples are walking through. Because I have the tendency to get buried in my own pain. I, I, my, my sort of default is that when I'm walking through a season of pain, I'm focused on me all the time. But Jesus sees outside of that, and even in the midst of his own pain, he wants to minister to the disciples' pain. So I just want to say, whatever you walk in the door with today, number one, Jesus sees. Number two, he's not too busy or too preoccupied to see what's going on in your heart and in your life. And number three, he has a word for you. Listen to what he says. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your what? Advantage. advantage. Here it is. This is the secret advantage. It's to your advantage that I go away. 
For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus is saying to all of us today, hey, I want you to lift your eyes, if you can, just a little bit above the pain to see that there is not only help that's on the way, better than that, there's a helper who's here. There's a helper who's here. And Jesus brings them back to the subject of, of the spirit. And he uses the term that we translate, at least in the ESV, helper. Everybody say helper. In the Greek, it's the word parakletos, and it's a tough one to translate. Like you could translate this word as advocate or friend or advisor. It has all of these sort of dynamics to it, but at the core, it's a personal, intimate support. That's who the Spirit is. Personal, intimate support. And listen to the things that Jesus has already told us about the Spirit in John chapter 14. He's already told us that he would ask the Father to send the Spirit, that the Spirit would be with us forever, that the Spirit would manifest the presence of the Father and the Son to us, that the Spirit would teach us, that the Spirit would bring peace to our hearts. Last week, he said that the Spirit in the midst of suffering, the Spirit and the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will, what? Bear witness about me. So when you're walking through pain and suffering, the Spirit is going to testify about Jesus to you. And remember, all of these things Jesus is saying to men who have walked with him intimately for three years. Men who have hugged him, men who have had their tears wiped by him, men who have said, hey, will you tell us a little bit more about that parable that just blew our minds and actually we have no idea what you're talking about? Men who have laughed with him. And he says to these guys, these guys that are sitting around this table and now walking with him as he's going towards the garden, he says to them, it is absolutely necessary for you to receive the Spirit. So they didn't know enough just by walking with Jesus for three years, they needed the Spirit in order to be positioned to live as disciples successfully in the world. So let me ask you a very obvious question. If people who walked with Jesus, who touched Jesus, who heard the words of Jesus, who high-fived Jesus, who were hugged by Jesus, if those people needed the Spirit, do you think we might need the Spirit also? Absolutely. Absolutely. See, learning how to host the Spirit is absolutely essential to living as a disciple. So the role of the Spirit is paramount. I want you to see that. And Jesus makes this audacious claim. It's better for you disciples that I go away. Because when I do, I will send the Spirit. And I just want you to write this truth down in the notes that you got when you walked in. That the whole, according to Jesus, now you could disagree with him. I don't suggest it. According to Jesus, the Holy Spirit's indwelling is better than Jesus's physical presence. And you may just wanna write like a question mark in your notes to go ask yourself the question, do I believe that this is actually true? How, how many of you have ever had somebody say or said yourself, like a family member that couldn't come home at Christmas and they said, 
I can't be there in person, but I'll be there in spirit. And nobody has ever thought after hearing or saying that, and you know what? That's better than being there in person, unless you didn't want that person there, right? Some of you, you're like, well, if Uncle Bob just came in spirit, that'd be better, right? But nobody thinks, well, you know, I'm really glad I can't be there in person because now I get to be there in spirit. And being there in spirit is so much better than being there in person. No one's ever said that. No one except Jesus. And so I think it should cause us to ask, like, why? Why does Jesus say this? What is the advantage that the Spirit brings that Jesus wants to point his disciples to? Like, if this is the secret advantage that he's given us to flourish in his world, what does that look like to actually live that out and to stay in step with the Spirit? So glad you asked that. Because Jesus is going to go on. And he's going to describe why the Spirit's indwelling is better than his physical presence. And listen to what he said, verse 8. He said, and when he, the Spirit, comes, he will, what? Convict, Convict the world concerning sin, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So why is the Spirit's coming better than the presence of Jesus? Well, it's because the Spirit brings about conviction brings about conviction. And I think you could read this, this this word convict actually goes with each of these three words that Jesus mentioned. So you could read it, he will convict the world of sin, he will convict of righteousness, and he will convict of judgment. Which makes the word conviction pretty important, doesn't it? Like we should probably identify what that word means. Here's what it means. It means to convince with solid or compelling evidence, to expose or to prove as wrong. And one of the Spirit's roles in our lives and in the world is that He exposes error. He exposes error. Now, um, many will point out that the language that's being used here is judicial in nature. Like you, you probably get that, whether or not you could put your finger on it or not, but we hear the word convict and we immediately think of what? Of a trial, right, of a courtroom. And, and my guess is we, we immediately hear that word and we think, well, like somebody who is guilty is getting charged with something. They're going to they're gonna walk out of the court maybe in handcuffs. They're going to be put in jail in order to do time because of the crime that they did. They're being found out. And so much of the time, I, I read this word conviction like with an embedded sense of anger. And not only that, but I read conviction oftentimes as condemnation. It's like conviction is finding out that you're wrong and condemnation is being judged and sentenced for that wrong. But those words are not the same thing. Conviction and condemnation are very different. And I want you to recognize too that there are a number of ways that you could be brought under conviction. Um, A friend could say to you, hey, I see this going on in your life and I don't think it's the way of Jesus, And I think God has better for you. That could bring about conviction. Um, 
I've been convicted by people who are just on fire living out their faith, living it out boldly, and their lives bring about conviction in my life. So there's a lot of ways that the Spirit brings about conviction in our life. And what I want you to see is that um, as the Spirit brings about conviction, we also see that the Spirit is our helper, right? That the Spirit is our advocate that the Spirit is our friend. And so if you imagine a court scene with conviction, the Spirit who's bringing about conviction is also the lawyer who's standing not on the other side of the court in order to condemn you, but is standing right beside of you in order to defend you. He is the advocate who's coming to your defense even as he points out your offense. Right? If the Spirit is a lawyer, he's working for you, not against you. So the conviction the Spirit brings is not angry condemnation, but compassionate truth. It's an expression of love, the fullness of grace and truth that comes through Jesus. It's like pointing out something in a friend's life that they don't see for themselves and calling them toward health and good. And just to clarify, just to clarify, I think we need to ask, like, who is the Spirit convicting? Who is the Spirit convicting? Well, Jesus has said in verse 7, he said, but if I go, I will send him to you. Who's the you here? Raise your hand if you're a disciple of Jesus. Yeah, that he will send the Spirit to you, to disciples. And then he says, he, the Spirit, will convict the world. So what's going on here is that Jesus sends the Spirit to the disciples for the sake of the world. And I don't see this as being primarily that the Spirit will dump information into your head that then you can stand on a corner and preach to the world. I don't think that's the primary way that the Spirit convicts the world. I view the Spirit's work here less as passing on information and more as disciples receiving the Spirit's conviction themselves and then embodying and declaring the goodness of God and the truth of the gospel to the world. So they, we are transformed. And then our transformed lives shine a light on who God is and what he wants for his whole creation. And what we're going to see here is that the work of the Spirit is to bring about conviction around three of the most important questions anyone will ever answer. What's wrong with me and the world? How can things be made right? And where in the world is this all heading? So let's tackle each of those questions one at a time. And as you're going to see, verses 9, 10, and 11 answer one of those questions. Verse 9. Concerning sin, conviction of sin, because they do not, what? Believe in me. So if you were to ask Jesus what's wrong with the world... He wouldn't say what's wrong with the world is ultimately inequality or um, a lack of resources or a lack of food or a lack of peace. If you ask Jesus what's wrong with the world, his one word answer would be sin. 
That's how he'd answer. And if you ask Jesus, how do you define sin? He would say, well, sin is that people do not believe in me. Which is a really interesting way to define sin. Because most of us, if we were asked, what is sin? We would say, well, sin is missing the mark. And if someone asked, what does that mean? We would say, well, it's where you don't do the things that you're supposed to do. And therefore you are guilty before God. And that is one way to look at sin, but it's not the primary way that Jesus defines sin. The primary way that Jesus defines sin is relational, not judicial. So he says, at the core of sin is that we don't believe, and I think um, belief, you could translate it as faith, but I think the best translation of that word is trust. We don't trust Jesus. See, belief and faith have this idea that they're just purely or merely cognitive, but trust is like on the ground day to day. What's wrong with the world? Jesus says what's wrong with the world is ultimately people don't trust Jesus. They don't trust that they need Jesus. They don't trust that God is a good father who has their ultimate good in mind. In fact, in fact, at the core root and substance of sin from the very beginning is a lack of trust that God is good and that he has good in store for us. Go back to the beginning. That's what sin is. It's not trusting that God is good and has good in store. That's why Paul will write to the church in Rome and he'll say, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Therefore, what does proceed from faith is not sin or trust is not sin. And so Jesus is pointing out that the spirit who dwells in believers will convict us when we aren't trusting Jesus because the spirit wants us to be wholly devoted to him. He wants us at the core of our being to know that God is good and that we can trust him on our best day and on our worst day. And then, and then as disciples are brought into that conviction then they are able to trust Jesus. And as they do, there's a light that starts to shine and a conviction that starts to ripple out from our community and our lives to the rest of the world that the world needs to trust Jesus also. So it's both through our empowered words and our transformed lives. So I would, I would invite you to ask the Spirit today, are there any ways? Are there any ways that I'm not trusting Jesus? Like maybe with my money or maybe with my relationships, or maybe have I just in general, just lost hope in the goodness of God? Like ask him because he wants to bring about conviction. So, so the spirit who brings conviction of our sin also brings conviction around this question, how can things be made right? And here's what Jesus says. Concerning righteousness, or you could say rightness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. So if unbelief is the core of sin, then faith is the essence of righteousness. And in one breath, what Jesus has done is he's exposed and he's laid bare and exposed as shams all of our attempts to make ourselves righteous. 
Like any attempt that we have to make ourselves right, either before God, but I think maybe even more so in our world, in our day, like we want to know that we are right internally. Like I think now in our day, it's not quite, the question people aren't asking is like, how can I be made right before God? It's how can I be okay? Like how can I know that my life has meaning? How can I know that my life has purpose? How, how can I know that my identity is safe. And Jesus says, any attempt that you've made in order to answer those questions with your own accomplishments, with your own obedience, with your own, I've done this, so now I'm okay, all of it is exposed as an absolute shadow and a lie when Jesus says, well, I'm gonna convict you of righteousness because I go to the Father. So here's what you need to know that there is a righteousness that is revealed by God through Jesus that takes you out of the equation and your accomplishments out of the equation and puts your righteousness fully on the righteousness that only Jesus provides. That we are made right with God, not because of what we do, but what, because of Christ has done for us. Listen to the way that Paul said it in the book of Romans. He said, but now... But like right now, like today, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So here's what he's saying. Like, it's not going against the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets were pointing to this righteousness, not their own righteousness. So what's the righteousness? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who, what? Believe. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus has taken our sin and given us his righteousness. It's the, the, the reformers called it the great exchange. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. And I love this phrase, that the spirit will convict of righteousness. Because we often, like, we have no problem with ex expecting that God will convict us of sin. And, and how many of you have experienced that? Yeah. Me too. How many of you have experienced being convicted of righteousness? That in the midst, praise God, praise God. I hope by the end of this, all of you raise your hand. Because that's one of the things the spirit wants to do in people who are disciples, to convince you that on your worst day, you are still right before God because of Jesus. To convince you that even in your failures, his righteousness abounds. To convince you that shame and guilt do not have to have the final word in your life, that there's no condemn condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I pray that you walked out of this place wildly convicted of your sin, but maybe even more convicted that because of Jesus, you are made right by your to your heavenly father who loves you and sees you and knows you. Friends, Jesus paid it all and all to him we owe. It's not about you. It's about him. Praise the Lord. And this means, friends, you guys, this means that we can be a community of freedom. Man, like I... I long to see like small groups that meet and life groups that meet where we can confess sin to each other and we can confess righteousness to each other. Like where we preach the gospel to each other. Like don't be in a, an accountability group that preaches half the gospel. 
Like so many of us preach half the gospel. We're sinners, we're sinners, we're sinners. Yes, we are, but praise be to God, he has made us righteous by his grace. I hope the spirit wildly convicts you of that. And as he does, may that confidence in what Jesus has done ripple out from among us to where the world is convicted. They are different. Like somehow their failure isn't final. Like somehow their shame doesn't name them. Like what is it about the work of Jesus in the midst of this community that is a light shining to the one who says, I am your righteousness. Third, the spirit wants to answer the question, where in the world is this all heading? Where in the world is this all heading? Oh, I forgot to put this up there. The spirit convicts you to believe that through Jesus, you have been made righteous. Somebody say amen. amen. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So where in the world is this all heading? I don't know about you, but too often it feels like evil is going to get the final say. It feels like sadness is just overwhelming and that pain is simply too much to carry. But the Holy Spirit wants to convict you that Jesus has the final word. In chapter 12, Jesus told his disciples, now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Like Satan is definitively sentenced and condemned by history's two greatest events, the cross of Jesus that paid the penalty for your sin and his resurrection that invites you into new life. The spirit convicts disciples to believe in Jesus's victory and to plant their life in that as their deepest hope. Where is all of this heading? It's heading to a place where every wrong is made right, where everything sad is untrue, where every tear will be wiped away, where complete restoration and renewal will be our reality because behold, Jesus says, I am making all things new. The enemy of your soul has been definitively judged and defeated. And so here's the message, like followers of Jesus, they live in this truth and then their embodied message is you can either step into the victory of Jesus and the judgment that he took or you can try your best to win victory and to be judged on your own. But the choice is yours. And Jesus' followers emanate this light that we know we know the end of the story. Jesus has won the victory. All right, but wait, there's more. So the Spirit both brings conviction and the Spirit does something else. It says this, verse 12. I've seen, I, I still have many things to say to you, Jesus says, but you can't bear them now. And I just want to stop here and acknowledge how gentle and tender Jesus is. Like he, like he is the, the king of the cosmos and he doesn't come to his disciples and say, you better get this or what's wrong with you. 
Like he comes to them and says, listen, I have so much more that I wanna say to you, but you're just unable to receive it. Um, There's this great book, it's called uh, Three Mile an Hour God by Kasuke Kiyame. And he says that God moves at the speed of love. And he does in your life too. And there's things that he wants to teach you that you're just not ready for. But Jesus isn't in a hurry. Like he has such confidence in the Spirit's work that he's able to say, there's so much I want to say, but I don't have to say it all because I'm sending the Spirit. Your great advantage, your great advantage. And when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So notice here, that the Spirit never moves independently from the Father and the Son. The Spirit is bound to Jesus, and Jesus is bound to the Father, and they are united in one community of love. And the Spirit says, I will pass on to you what I hear from Jesus, and he will tell me what he hears from the Father, so that we are all operating in unity. In John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus already said, the Spirit's going to remind you of the things that I have said to you. And now we see that the Spirit will do more than just remind of what Jesus has said in the past, but he will point the disciples toward what Jesus will do in the future, the things that are to come. So there's like both past and prophetic nature to the way that the Spirit interacts with those who are believers. I love the way that great missiologist Leslie Newbegin put it when he wrote and said, the whole Christian message is about the things that are coming with its center in the one who is to come. It's about the final judgment of the world, about the establishment of God's reign of justice and peace, and about the one who is king, judge, and savior. So knowing the things that are to come, that is the essence of the hope that you and I get to both declare and embody as Jesus followers. And once again, we see that the Spirit is this guide, the the teacher, and that one of his main roles is to not only expose error, but to illuminate truth. To illuminate truth. He's a teacher. The question is, is he your teacher? Um, I can remember some of the best teachers I ever had they, they didn't just dump information into my head. And my guess is that you would say the same thing about your favorite teachers. Like they, they didn't just give you information. They probably gave you a passion for learning. Uh, up until my senior year, um, I absolutely hated reading. And uh, which is like part of God's like biting irony in my life because now if I had three hours and you're like, you could do anything for three hours, I'd be like, um, I'll go for a run and then read the rest of the time, right? But that wasn't the way that I was up until my senior year. And I took AP English um, uh, at the um, encouragement of my parents. And um, I'm like, I'll take the class, but I'm not going to take the test at the end. And I had this teacher, I had this teacher and her name was Miss Bess. And she was five foot nothing and a bodybuilder. And she loved Shakespeare. (laughs) And after taking that class, I started to love reading. I can't remember anything she actually said, but I can remember the way that I wanted that kind of passion 
and that kind of excitement in my own life. How many of you have had a teacher like that? Did you know that the Spirit of God wants to be a teacher like that for you? The question is, the question is, what subject is the Spirit of God who resides in you, what subject is he teaching? Verse 14. And he, the Spirit, will glorify me, Jesus. There's the subject. For he, the Spirit, will take what is mine and will declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What's the subject matter that the Spirit is obsessed with? What's the subject matter that the Spirit specializes in? The Spirit of God who dwells within you is absolutely obsessed with Jesus. The Holy Spirit who dwells within you does not focus on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit defers like a, like a, a mirror back to Jesus and goes, no, it's all about him. It's all about him. That's why the people who walk closest with the Spirit talk most about Jesus. I love the way that the great scholar and author Dale Bruner put it when he said, the work of the Holy Spirit is simply to thrill us with Christ. The Holy Spirit is shy about absolutely everything, but about Christ, the Spirit is downright bullish. I love that. Like Dale Bruner for the win. Let's close in prayer. Like the the Holy Spirit is like that person that you don't want to get stuck next to at the Super Bowl party that you're going to because they always change the subject back to that one thing that they love talking about. Like if you know you're next to them, you know you're going to be talking about politics or you know you're going to be talking about whatever, fill in the blank. Like the Holy Spirit's like that. And he wants to always talk with you about Jesus. Like he's always changing the subject back to Jesus. You're like, hey, I'd like to talk about me and all the things going on with me. And he's like, let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus. So this is so important, you guys, because I think we need to understand what the Spirit's agenda is if we are going to understand how to walk with him. The Spirit's agenda is Jesus. So you might start asking some questions like, like, like Holy Spirit, where is Jesus in this? Like, Holy Spirit, what? What is Jesus saying to me? What are you saying to me that Jesus wants me to hear? Like, Holy Spirit, how, how would Jesus respond to this situation? Because I don't know what to do. Like, Holy Spirit, what hope does Jesus want me to draw from? Because I feel like I'm done. Holy Spirit, are there any ways that I'm not actively surrendered to Jesus. Man, like you start talking to the Spirit of God about the things that the Spirit has said he wants to talk to you about, I guarantee you'll start hearing his voice in new ways. I just think we keep changing the subject. And he's like, I I just want to talk to you about Jesus. And you have no idea how deep and meaningful of an impact that will make in your life. So talk to you about what he's talk to him about what he said he wants to talk to you about. Do you know that helper? 
Do you know that advocate? Do you know that friend? Do you you know that teacher? I think it was like a year and a half ago, someone gave me this um, little pamphlet, I think from the 1970s, that was written by Bill Bright, who's um, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. And it's entitled, How to Walk in the Spirit. And there's four things that he identifies that um, I just want to end our time by trying to answer the question in 17 seconds. Um, how do we actually do this? Okay, I'm kidding. I'm going to take more than 17 and you'll still make it for the start of the game, I promise. Okay. <laughs> how do we actually do this? Here's the first thing. We've got to be filled with the Spirit, you guys. Got to be filled with the Spirit. And Paul makes it a command. He says to the church in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. Did you know that Jesus said to his disciples, he said, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father, let's just say this together, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So ask him. And then, and then, do you trust that Jesus is good on his promises? If you do, then you can be confident that he has given you the spirit. So listen to the spirit's voice. Repent when the spirit convicts of sin. Rejoice when the spirit convicts of righteousness and do your best to stay in step with him daily. Be filled with the spirit. Second, be prepared for spiritual conflict. We talked about this last week, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it today. But you just need to know that there's a battle raging for your soul. The world, the flesh, and the devil all would love to destroy you and take you down. There is a thief who wants to steal and kill and destroy. There are desires that you have that could destroy you. There's a system that we live in that runs contrary to the good that God has for you. And so you need to know this, that in one sense, trusting Jesus means that you step into the victory that Jesus has already won. And in another sense, it means that you step into the battle between the flesh and the spirit that has just begun. And if you're not ready for it, you're going to be destroyed by it. So just know there's spiritual conflict that's raging all around you. So you've got to be filled with the Spirit. You've got to be prepared for spiritual conflict. And you have to know the rights that you have as a child of God. And this is why we're so passionate about classes like Discipleship Journey and Truths That Transform and Set Free. Like all of these are designed around trying to teach you who you are. to teach you who God says you are. And that there's no condemnation. That on your worst day, you're still his child. That there's nothing you can do that will separate you from his love. That you are a saint. I know, I know. Like last night was hard. You're a saint, according to scripture. And it just teaches us who we are. Because if the enemy can convince us that we are someone we're not, he already has the victory. And then finally, finally, the challenge, the invitation is to live by faith. Or you might even say to live by trust. Because the righteous, all throughout the scriptures, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the core of the Christian message. 
Friends, that we have this beautiful invitation that the Spirit wants to make more real and more active and more experienced in our life, that at the core of who God is, He has our good in mind. So at the core of our lives can be this conviction that we can trust Him. Like that's the operating center of our lives. So we're filled with the Spirit. We're prepared for conflict. We know who we are. And then we live by the Spirit. Those are the four ways that we can walk in and experience this great advantage that Jesus says, I'm leaving so that you all have. So remember, friends, remember, the Holy Spirit's indwelling is better than Jesus' physical presence because he wants to expose error and convict of sin and righteousness and of Jesus' victory. And he also wants to lead you to truth, pointing you to Jesus, pointing you to Jesus. And I pray that you and we will experience that in deeper and deeper ways, that you will know his voice of compassionate love and conviction that you'll sense him leading you into more truth, that you'll stay in step with him, and that as you do, you will remember that the most, those most in step with the Spirit are those most in love with Jesus, because that's who the Spirit's obsessed with. So let's just take a moment, and I want to invite you to just ask the question, Spirit of God, what do you want to convict me of today? What do you want to convict me of today? And why don't you just assume that it has something to do with Jesus? Because that's what scripture would say. The spirit wants to talk to you about Jesus. So what kind of conviction do you want to bring? Are there areas I'm not trusting? fully? Are there areas I'm relying on my own righteousness and forgetting that he's my advocate and stands before the throne of God right now? And is that my defense? Are there areas that I'm thinking that, gosh, just evil and suffering is just going to overwhelm and I've forgotten about your victory? Spirit, where do you want to convict? How do you want to point us to Jesus? Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Expose our error with your gracious, compassionate truth. Convict us of sin. Oh, convict us of righteousness. Point us to Jesus. Point us to Jesus. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.